Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. In today's episode of Project Recovery... So my parents had to tell me what had happened, that I didn't have legs and that I was paralyzed. And when they told me, I knew that I would be okay. And that's what kept going through my mind was that I'll be okay. Like, that's the honest answer. Make sure you listen to the end. Find us on Facebook at Project Recovery. We'll have that and much more coming up. Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction, but more importantly, it's about recovery. And it's brought to you by our friends at knowyourscript.org. They're helping you talk to yourself, talk to your doctor, talk to your family about your prescription because there's so many people, Dr. Matt, that have come to our podcast who got into their addiction through a legal prescription. Yeah, I think that might be the number one avenue that we've had on the show of surgery, injury, something like that, and then they take the pills and they're hooked. We recently just had a guest on, I think in the past three weeks, her name was Tony Carroll, Tony with an I, mm-hmm. and uh, she was very anti-drugs, anti-alcohol. No alcohol, nothing, yeah. Uh, you know, and always took uh, her job as a cheerleader and what she did as a role model very, very seriously. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to five kids and uh, sleepless nights and migraine headaches, prescribed some opioids. And right. Did you know that there is now a new law for prescribers where the if they are prescribing a schedule two or three drug, which would be like a benzodiazepine or an opioid or uh, a heavy sleep med, uh, they have to they actually have to contact the other doctors who are prescribing. So they have to communicate now. Isn't that cool? I think that's amazing. That's I think- part of the know your script. I mean, the, the doctors now have to communicate with each other just like we're trying to communicate with them. And I, I think that shows you the seriousness of this uh, epidemic that's really going on and taking hold in here in Utah and across the country that we're actually getting proactive. And that's what they're all about is knowing your script. So knowyourscript.org. Thank you very much for allowing us to do this. Now, the first part of the show is where Dr. Matt and I kind of talk about things that are going on in our lives. Usually that's where I share things that are going on in my recovery. Uh, and uh, I wanted to tell you something, Dr. Matt, and I, and I know I sent you this, but my girlfriend, the lovely Leslie, Right. Yep. Uh, her daughter, Addie, who's a senior at Fremont, and she's going to play into this a little bit later on with our guest, who I'm very excited to have here today. We're going to talk about her in just a second, but her name's Addie Harris. And so she chose this assignment, and I'll just read you. goes, this year I've chosen to take Communications 2110. In this class, we are assigned to do a project on social justice topic that happens within the community. We have chosen our topic surrounding alcoholism. And, yep. you know, she's been with me since the day one of sobriety. 
Right. And do you, is that why she chose this topic, do you think? I, yeah, I'd have to think so. You know, I mean, I don't think that's the thing is I don't think a lot of seniors in high school are talking about alcoholism. No, no, not unless it's touched their lives through maybe family members, but their own experience is pretty unlikely to be. But I think it's know. evident of the popularity of my daughter's letter that it really has happening a lot more than we know of. And the, sure. and, and people aren't talking about well, it. That's, what, what do we say? Alcoholism is a family disease. It yes, it everyone. is. Yeah. And so she's doing this thing and she wanted to send us some questions. So I thought we'd answer some of her questions right here on air. Let's and, do it. And then we'll finish them. So the first one is for you, Dr. Matt. Do you find most people who struggle with addiction is in their families who are ones that want them to get help or most or themselves? Does that make sense? No, not at all. I messed it up. So, <laughs> is, it, is it the family members that want them to get help or do they want to get help? Yeah. That's the essence of the question. You got it. Right. I would say most of the time it's family members uh, because most people who have an addiction, it takes some experiences, usually some pretty heavy ones, before they realize they, they're, they need some help. And... People don't like to talk about feeling weak or powerless, and if you're addicted to anything, you you do feel powerless. I use the term broken uh, because for the longest time, I thought I was broken. I would see so many people who seemed to have it all together, who could sit down at a dinner, have two cocktails, and walk away. Mm -hmm. I would sit on my back deck and wonder why I was broken, and then that would lead me to try to negotiate with my sobriety. I would try to outthink uh, my addiction and I tried everything possible to try to fix it and rather on than your just, own right yeah and then yeah. rather than just accept it right uh, so I, yeah I think that one so the next question is also for you Dr. Matt what is one thing all addicts for the most part have in common Oh, that's a great question. Um, is there something? Well, that's a, that's a hard one because I think people do have a very individual experience with their addiction, but there are some commonalities. One is it may run in their family, and the more families talk about it, the more you know if you're going to be at risk. Your children should know if addiction runs in your family. If Grandpa or Uncle Billy or whoever had a problem with it, it's important to talk about that. Um, I would also say a lot of addicts, people have their, they may be self-medicating for something. So in my world of psychology, uh, mental health, a lot of people who are struggling with an addiction, it started with covering up depression or anxiety. And so, so if we can get to the root of those things, people don't need to self-medicate. But those are a couple of thoughts. And see, my mind instantaneously goes to trauma. Uh, we've been doing this podcast for over two years, mm -hmm. and I would say probably more than half of our guests who have been addicted to some sort of substance, it all began with a trauma. That's certainly very common. I and, agree. And so, you know, I, you know, people ask me, why did I become an alcoholic? And I go, well, first off, nobody chooses to become an alcoholic. Right. <laughs> uh, I didn't have any trauma that, you know, right. that led me down the road. Uh, when I started drinking, it was for fun. And in the beginning, it was fun. Uh, but then it became a way for me to cope with hard situations, for feelings, to numb out things. I would just say life because I wasn't able to deal with them on my own. And I'm not blaming anybody else, but I was never taught how to well, deal. We've, we've talked quite a few times that uh, you and I grew up in a generation where you just kind of rub some dirt on it, walk it off. Um, we weren't really encouraged to talk about our feelings or seek help for emotional things. Right? I can tell you this sentence was uttered more than once at my house. Dad, I think I need to go to the hospital. Are you bleeding? No. <laughs> then you don't need to go to the oh, hospital. Yeah, yeah he, he must have talked to my dad because my dad said that too. But then you want to flip that and, you know, but if you break your arm 
you go to the hospital. Yeah. But if you feel like there's something broken in your head, you don't think the same thing. You think, I'll just figure this out. I'll and, and But you know, the funny thing is that wasn't your dad or my dad's fault either because they grew up in a generation of the same sort of thing. I think we're finally at a point where uh, addiction and mental health issues have become so um, prevalent in society that people are now really talking about them. And we know it's okay if, if not completely necessary we should be talking about those things in our homes so i think it's it's changed a lot just in the last 20 years and that's great so the next question is for me and this is kind of a doozy it says do you feel like yourself have changed into a different person after becoming sober if you have changed into a different person, have i changed into a different person and i think the short answer is no because i think i was always this person I think I've become a better person because I've gotten sober, but I still say things I shouldn't. I'm still a little bit irreverent. I'm still a little bit loud. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm technically the same person. But I can tell you one of the reasons why I hesitated to get sober was because I thought I would be a different person. Oh, you did? I, I, I wondered if I would still be this gregarious guy, if I would still be up for anything, if I'd still mm-hmm. be willing to do the things that I did because I'd say it was alcohol courage. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and completely. So I wonder. I would I agree with you, though. I think you're essentially – we've known each other a long time, mm-hmm. and I think you're essentially just a better version of the same guy. And so, yeah, I don't think that I turned into a different person. And I think a lot of times people wonder that. You know, am I going to be a different person? Am I still going to be able to be who I was? Because when we had people who sit down in this chair, uh, and I can't remember their names, but we've had so many guests that when they were young, alcohol gave them the chance to be a little more outgoing. Liquid courage. Liquid courage. They, they yep. were able to do those things, and it made them feel different. It helped them get out of their skin, out of their head, and be the person they always wanted to be. Now, I'll tell you, that person was always there. Mm-hmm. You were given alcohol unfair credit because it just – it. It lowered your inhibitions a little bit to show something that was well, always in there. And that you're describing a person with an anxiety disorder, right? Somebody who's got so much anxiety that they, they have a hard time letting themselves be authentic and genuine and outgoing. And the alcohol can kind of, you know, dampen that anxiety reaction. And then they feel like they can be themselves. I talk to people about that all the time. You know, for the longest time, and I still do it, I DJ weddings. And I've always been so impressed at the dancing that goes on in a Mormon wedding. Yeah. Because, I mean, I look out there and I go, you guys are tearing it up. You guys are dancing everywhere and you're completely sober. <laughs> you know? And I, and, and, and you're I, impressed because they're, they're sober. They're and, sober. And they can still dance. And they're having a great time. Yeah. Because I've also DJed parties where alcohol is a factor. Yeah. And you, that party and dance floor doesn't get popping until they get drunk. Because they need that they to need help that them to let them. loose. Oh, interesting observation. And, and so, yeah. I mean, I, I would sit there. I was like, Mormon weddings are the best, you know, because these guys are just out there getting crazy and having fun and not a care in the world. And and, and I and I go and and, and I, everyone will still feel good the next day. Yes. <laughs> and, and I always said to myself, I was like, why can't I do that? Now I know I can. Now you can. But, the problem is, I think for a lot of people like you. You started drinking when you were a teenager. Yeah, 14. And so all of your real development, your you know adolescence and adult development, alcohol was a factor. So, of course, you would wonder, 
can I, would I still be the same person without it? Because you haven't really done a whole lot without it. No, from 14 until 45, alcohol was right by my side through most of my whole entire life. Mm-hmm. And everything that I learned to do, I learned to do with alcohol. I told you, I didn't know sober softball was a thing until I got into rehab. I was like, <laughs> wait a minute, you guys play softball sober? Who does about, that? How about golfing? Golf? I was like, that, that, what? This is crazy. <laughs> But you know what? My golf game's gotten better. I still can't swing a bat, but I can run the bases without getting winded, you know? And so there's a lot of things happening. Yeah. And so I would say to Addie in her question, do I think I'm a different person? No, I think I'm the same person. I'm just a better version. Yeah, I would agree with that. We'll do one more question, then we're going to move on to our guest. How did your addiction make you feel about yourself? And you I sort of answered. You talked about that a little bit already. And, and for the longest part, it made me feel broken. And I've said it a lot of times on this podcast. The first time I didn't feel alone was when I was in an AA room with 200 people mm-hmm. that just couldn't figure it out like I did. I often beat myself up because I was doing cool things on TV. I had a wonderful marriage. I had three kids. I was very, very blessed. But I was handcuffed to alcohol. And I said it on two podcasts ago. I fought for alcohol harder in my life than anything else. And that made me feel bad. Mm -hmm. And I don't like that about me. And now I fight for life harder than I fight for anything. And it's addiction is a self-esteem killer. It really does destroy a person's self-esteem because you feel powerless. Like you said, handcuffed to something. You, You don't feel in control of yourself. Um, feeling good about oneself has to do with owning and recognizing your accomplishments and your abilities, feeling confident in yourself. And addiction takes that away from a person. And so I don't think there is anybody who has ever struggled with addiction that wouldn't agree with the fact that their self-esteem goes down exponentially over the years as they feel more and more um, sort of a <clears throat> victim of their own addiction. You know, I'm 45, and I just thought of this. My longest relationship. You're 47. Oh, yeah, 47. (laughs) Um, I'm from Ogden. I'm not great at math. Um, But my longest relationship is with alcohol. Yeah. And, you know, when when, when I'm glad I'm done with that relationship. But when I broke up with her, it was tough. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to life. I love this podcast. I love what we do. And I want to say thank you for doing this with me and Josh and KSL and everybody for allowing me to do this. Uh, I'm getting a little nervous and you can tell it because I start to run my words together because our guest today is an amazing young lady. I'm very, very excited to have her on the show. She's 18 years old. She's four years older than when I first started drinking. Yeah. I talked to her dad about a month ago. We've been planning this and I told her dad, we're two sides of the same coin. And you're going to understand why I say that when I introduce you. Her name is Sarah Fry. Uh, And Sarah, I think you're amazing. And before we find out more about your story, let's find find out about your upbringing. Tell me a little something about Sarah. So I'm the youngest of six kids, and I love having a big family. Um, I'm a cheerleader, and I've been a cheerleader for about seven years. Um, I'm a senior in high school. I 
just have a lot of friends that I love. Um, yeah, that's a little bit about me. <laughs> and um, your life changed last summer. How did your life change? So last summer at the end of July, I was coming home from Bear Lake and we were going through the Logan Canyon. Um, I was with three other friends in a little sedan and we were heading home and I mean, I don't know if you've been through the Logan Canyon. Yeah, I went to Utah State. We would go up there yeah. all the time. Yeah, so it's pretty... Well, it's notorious for being... They sometimes call it Sardine Canyon, right? It's it's. Is that the right well, one? No, Sardine Canyon's the canyon below. Logan Canyon's is the canyon, canyon above. above. Okay. And so Sardine will take you from Brigham City to Logan. Yeah. Logan Canyon will take you from Logan oh, to Bear Lake. Lake. You're right. Okay. Yeah, so it's super narrow and tight. And we were just driving along. I was in the back passenger seat, and we were hit head-on by a drunk driver. Um, They estimated he was going about 70 miles per hour around the bend, and there was nowhere for my friend Tavy, who was driving. There was nowhere for her to go because there was a cliff on one side and a mountain on the other side. Um, When when he hit us head-on, I was instantly paralyzed from the waist down and started internally bleeding i so i mean there was no cell service in the canyon either and so we stayed in that canyon for about an hour before the ambulance came luckily someone had a satellite phone which is just a huge miracle that someone there had a satellite phone because i don't know anyone who even has a satellite phone um so the ambulance finally came and i we were all sent to the hospital um, I was then life-lighted to primary children's because they realized how bad my injuries were. Can I stop you there for a second? Yeah. You guys were there an hour before the ambulance even showed up. What was going on during that hour? Do you remember things? Was it a blur? Uh, I mean, walk me through that. Yeah, so I don't remember much about the accident. I remember like little snippets. Um, I remember being, like, hunched over, um, and I was looking at the floor, and I kept trying to—my friend Brooke, who was right in front of me in the passenger seat, she was holding out her hand behind her, and I kept trying to grab it, but, like, I couldn't move. Like, I felt so weak all of a sudden, and I felt like I couldn't breathe, and— the people there helping um, who came to our aid, they were asking me questions, I think trying to keep me, like, away, kind of. They are asking me, like, when my birthday was and all this other stuff. And I just remember, like, not caring about any of those questions. I kept saying, like, I can't breathe and, like, I don't know when my birthday is. Like, I don't really care. So that's about all that I remember um, from that, I remember a little bit about the ambulance ride, them telling me a number, and I had to remember the number that they told me. Um, what was the number? 21. <laughs> and, yeah, and that's they, about all I remember. And then they air-flighted you to primary children's. Yeah, which I don't remember any of the helicopter ride or anything. Can you tell us about your friends and and 
what was their experience in the accident? Yeah, so the driver, um, because she was slamming on the brake so hard, um, when the impact happened, she broke her femur, and it was a really bad break. Um, the windshield was touching their faces, the two girls in the front. Um, so that's how bad the car was smashed. Uh, the girl in the front passenger seat, she had many abdominal and back injuries, kind of just pains mostly. The boy sitting next to me, his name is Josh, he broke his collarbone and cracked his pelvis. But he was the one that could get out of the car. He saw the car kind of smoking, so he wanted to make sure that nothing would catch on fire. And he just was going around. He tried getting us out, but we were all pretty much trapped. Mm. It's miraculous that um, no one lost their life. I know. We Just recently, we went to Logan and talked to the... What are they? The firefighters? The paramedics. The paramedics um, who... Went to the fire station that dispatched the ambulances. Oh. I got to talk with the paramedics who um, were in her ambulance and in the other ambulance. But because of so they they literally saved her life she was internally bleeding so so quickly and so profusely that had they administered had they gone by the book what from what the protocol and the manual says to do which was to administer an IV um, had they done that it would it would have the homeostasis would have leveled to the extent that her heart it wouldn't have pumped blood through and she would have died but they had a gut feeling to not do the IV so they went with their gut and that's what saved her Wow. Along with the fact that they had, there was an off-duty paramedic that was on site with a neck brace. There was a pharmacist. There was another uh, a special ops guy that was trained in in medical situations. So she had, they had, these kids had these good Samaritans that were highly medically trained. But for her, they saved her life. Literally saved her life. They they said that when they first saw the accident, they knew that no one would be alive. <sighs> so. Were you guys all wearing your seatbelts? Yes, we all had our seatbelts on properly. I hear you telling that story. And in my situation, could have ended up like that. And it makes me feel so ashamed of what I did and the people that I hurt because of my selfish action. That I mean, it was selfish. I was doing an interview lately, and I said, "I when I set out that day, I didn't have any malicious intent. Like I didn't set out to hurt anybody. But getting behind the wheel of a car while intoxicated was the most malicious thing I could have ever done." I find it so cool that you're able to admit that and talk about it. And I'm not. I'm not. I'm not proud, and I think of the family and the people that I hurt every day, and I hope one day to be able to sit down and talk with them. I hate that their pain is a part of my story. I hate the fact that they had to get hurt for me to get sober. I wish I could have done it a different way, but like we talked before the mics went on, I can't live in the past. 
there's nothing I can do to change it. All I can do is be better than I was and keep moving forward. That's why I'm so excited for you to be here because your attitude and your resilience and the way you look at life is an inspiration to so many people out there. I wish I wasn't an alcoholic, but I am. You could sit there and say, I wish I wasn't hurt in the car, but you did. And so then life gives you a choice. And I'm sure you contemplated things, you know, what to do, or maybe you didn't. I kind of want to know when they said, you're paralyzed, what was your first thought? So it's actually kind of a crazy story. So once I got to the hospital, they realized that I wasn't getting any blood flow to either of my legs, and they would both need to be amputated above the knee. And... So they did that surgery, um, and then I don't remember the first two weeks of when I was at the hospital because I was so heavily sedated and constantly in and out of surgeries. So my parents had to tell me what had happened, that I didn't have legs and that I was paralyzed. And so they had to tell me, and I mean, it's kind of cool my reaction because when they told me I knew that I would be okay and that's what kept going through my mind was that I'll be okay and like that's the honest answer was that I could like see my life I just knew that I would be able to live my life I don't know it was just cool that I wasn't like scared or anything like that. So that was my first kind of reaction. You had a calming reassurance yeah, that your life was going to be okay. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Has it persisted this year? Have you, have you, has that been the feeling or has it come and gone? Yeah, that's definitely been the overall feeling. I mean, everyone has their hard days. I, I mean, We all, people who go through things probably always ask why me, all that stuff, but I feel like I've been able to help so many people because of my experiences, and that's what I love mostly, and that's one of the reasons, like, that makes me so happy and what's making my life so amazing so yeah the thought that i'll be okay and that i'll be happy has definitely kept going you're listening to project recovery we're talking to a beautiful young lady who's an inspiration to so many out there and i want to find out more from her Uh, we're going to hear that in just a second stick around more project recovery we'll be right back two years ago americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the kabul airport There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andreas Martin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. 
Welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. Our guest today is Sarah Fry and her father, Greg Fry. Uh, as we heard in the first uh, segment, she talked about what happened when they got hit head on in Logan Canyon by a drunk driver. Uh, in your own words, uh, you woke up two weeks later in Primary Children's Hospital with your parents telling you that you lost your legs. And your first reaction was, it's going to be okay, which Dr. Matt said was a calming, soothing sensation that you just felt all over your body, which is amazing because I don't know if I would have that frame of mind or that in me to say, I'm going to be okay. Yeah. I think you're right. I think so many people want to shout at the top of the lungs and go, why me? But as we've learned, we can't go back and change that. So now what do we do with that information? And I've been following you ever since this happened. And um, I have a quick story. Can yes. I share it? Yes. <laughs> okay. So anything to shut me up. <laughs> no. So you keep saying like we can't go change the past. We just have to focus on what's next kind of. So before the accident, um, my brother and I were like best friends and he's two years older than me. And Right before I turned 16, so he was 17 or 18, he could drive and I couldn't, and so he would drive me everywhere. And one day, we were coming home from school, and he was driving, I was in the front seat, and there was all, he had to go to work, but he had to take me home first and then go to work. And there was all of this traffic in front of us, and I was getting so mad that there was all of this traffic, and... He, because he was going to be late for work, and I felt so bad. He had to take me home, and I was just getting so mad. And he was like, "Sarah, there's nothing we can do to control this traffic, so you don't need to be upset by it." Because, I mean, I'm going as fast as I can. Like, there's nothing we can do. And after that, like my whole mindset going into high school totally changed. Like, even my friends were like, "Sarah, you've been so happy lately." And it's just because I just kept thinking of, like, if I can't control it, then I'm not going to, like, spend my time being upset by it if there's nothing I can do to control it. And so after the accident, that one memory has just been so special to me because it means so much to me now because there's nothing I can do except for focus on the future and... Yeah, because what happened happened, and now it's just, I just have to figure out what to do next. That, <laughs> How did first, you so wise? <laughs> well, I was going to say, pump the brakes. Who is this 17-year-old boy that has the wisdom? Like, 17-year-old boys are yeah. notoriously stupid. I know, he's right? amazing. Like, he, he sounds like your older brother's, you know, Buddha's driving you around or something. I, I'm impressed with that. And isn't that special when an experience can come back? Uh, time and time again, something we've had in our past can come back and help guide us in our future. And the fact that, that, that you and your brother have that close relationship and that he could be the wise, uh, 17 year old boy, which, you know, they're one in a million. Uh, and then for you to be able to hold on to that and have it guide you going forward. I think that's just a tremendously special experience. Yeah. It was like I was prepared for this. When tragedy struck you and your three friends coming home from Bear Lake. Um, I remember watching it. Uh, I know my girlfriend's daughter participated in it 
the community really rallied around you guys. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about that and what it meant to you. So when I was in the hospital, um, my so I'm a cheerleader, like I said, and my cheerleaders made a little dance for me, and they performed it at every single football game, halftime. In honor of you. In honor of me. And it was to my favorite song called Home Sweet. And it was just such an amazing routine. And then soon other school's cheerleaders started learning it. And then, like, by the end of the football season, every school in our district, um, their cheerleaders all knew the dance, and they would all perform it together. And so when I came home from the hospital... um, so when I came home from the hospital, there was like a little parade thing for me, and people were lining the streets like a mile long uh, leading to my house, and we were in a little side-by-side, and there were all of the cheerleaders, and they they all did the dance for me, and it was so cool. I was crying so hard, so yeah. Well, you, you gave Casey goosebumps. I, I can mean, see him from I mean, over I mean, here. Was cr- yes. She's being very humble. The the cheer squad was going to be out front as she drove home from the hospital after 75 days in the hospital. That was that was the goal. Word spread, and more schools wanted to participate. So it started getting to be a bigger and bigger event. And then the sports teams wanted – the football team, the wrestlers from our Clearfield High and other schools wanted to join and be there. And then it, it just started to spread. And then the fire department got involved and this police escort. And, it, and so we had to do a mile-long route – to the house and so they were doing the cheers uh all the way down the street to her to her house and just gave her the the most fabulous welcome home that that you could ever ask for so it's been amazing how this has just caught fire with people the the come 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 back from the ashes type of story now you're listening to the voice of greg keep the mic there greg and uh let's hear a little bit about your perception or what your thought process was from the first time you got the call that your daughter had been in an accident? Yeah. So, um, it's, it's interesting. I was, our neighbor down the street is, is a paraplegic or quadriplegic from a motorcycle accident that, um, I was on with him just five days before her accident. And I watched, I watched him crash on, you were riding, I was riding with him and he crashed and he crashed and he's a, he's a quad and on a ventilator. And that night, July 30th, Thursday night, I was talking with a, a friend in our neighborhood and I said, if, if you could offer him the opportunity to be only paraplegic and not be on a ventilator, which is waist down, which is waist down he, would, he would take that in a heartbeat. And not two minutes later, my phone rings and it's the hospital up in Logan saying, your daughter has been in a car accident and she's lost feeling in her from her waist down. We weren't sure what that meant. But um, we knew it was serious, and para- paralysis wasn't going through our mind because we're, we're in denial. We're in shock. Everything's going to be okay. This can't be happening. Each progressive phone call after that got worse and worse until they said they were going to be life-flighting her. And, and uh, we met him down at the hospital, and helicopter got there as we were pulling up. We saw it land on the roof. and uh, But because of COVID, we weren't allowed in. So that started just... A life, you know, for the next three, two or three months, um, only because she was a minor, where we allowed one parent in at a time, and we would rotate every twenty-four hours, my wife and I, and and so we were blessed to be able to be with her. 
but um, I can tell you the, the power of, um, of time to, to let things heal and, and let the wounds, like your, our mind was such in such a fog. We were being lifted and sustained by friends and neighbors, um, certainly by our faith, regardless of your religion. Those, those founding principles of whatever religion you are is what sustains you in hardship, and we saw that happen. But um, there's something about time and just letting some perspective happen in your life that when you can look back and, and we can see how blessed we were and how things generally aren't as bad as you think they're going to be at the time that you're in it. And we've seen that with her. Um, we just thought this was going to be the end of the world. And it's turned out to be such a miraculous blessing to us um, to see her positive attitude, the influence that she's having on others. But her strength and will is just such an inspiration to us as parents. It's really really helped us. But like I was mentioning to you before, I lost interest in all, all of my hobbies. Didn't want to go fishing, didn't want to ride motorcycles, didn't want to run. And if I did try, one day I did try to go on a run and I thought, how, how am I doing this? It was my day off. People were saying, you got to go do, do the things that are important to you and take care of yourself. But I tried going on a jog and I thought my, my daughter's in the hospital. She's paralyzed. She doesn't have any legs. Um, how, how can I, how can I do this? I can't do this. And, um, so that's been a learning opportunity for me to realize the importance of taking care of yourself. But I still don't have that interest in many things. I'm hoping it'll come back. But I don't know, maybe you have something to say on that. Well, I mean, you're going, you know, this has only been less than a year. And uh, everybody in the family is going to be going through um, something similar to what we call the process of grief, even though. You know, we're lucky that no lives were lost, lives were changed. And so having uh, the term is called anhedonia, where you lose interest in the things that used to bring you joy and satisfaction. You do them and you kind of feel, eh, it will come back. Partly it's as you realize that life is different now, but life is still good. And it's okay for all of us to indulge in self-care. And that's not really, shouldn't be an indulgence, but it probably feels like it's indulging something now to go for a run or, or do some of the, the things you used to enjoy. But as, as life continues to go on and as everyone adjusts and as you find new meaning in the lives and as your family kind of moves forward, yes, I, I do believe that that'll come back for you. And I assume other people in the family might be going through similar things. But, yeah, there is a fancy word called anhedonia. And, Greg, I think you said it. I think it's time. I think it's time. I think it's time, but I think it's also perspective. Time is essential. Most people wish time wasn't essential because you want to hurry and speed it up, right? Time is essential. But it's also looking for that new perspective, attaching your your mind to accepting the the way things are now, and like, and both of you have have talked about uh, this is a well, I'll I'll say this is a tough way for this to happen. But her influence over others has been tremendous, and and her ability to encourage and find purpose and meaning in her life. And I think as everyone adjusts and their perspective accepts that that's that's there's a meaning here, then the the feelings of depression and anhedonia and, and related hopelessness and things will fade away. Time is, of course, essential, but it's also how we adjust and, and accept the new, the new life. Yeah. Sarah, I want to go back to you 
What was the song that the cheerleaders danced to? That your favorite song? Yeah, it's Home Sweet by Russell Dickerson. Now, that song, Home Sweet, comes back around for you in a different way. Tell me about that. So we posted, so I kept watching their halftime performances every Friday night in my hospital bed just on my phone. And one of my strengths in cheer is learning choreography very quickly and picking up on things. So, I mean, as I would watch this over and over, I started to learn it just by watching. And so um, one day my mom, she kind of started filming me because the song came on and she started filming me and I was just doing the dance that they had done for me. And we posted it on our social media, on Instagram and Facebook. And Russell Dickerson, the artist of that song, actually saw it and he reached out and he sent me some merch, merchandise, and it was just so cool um, that he actually saw it. And then a couple months later, he, he, my parents said that we were having like an interview. And so, I mean, I was having a lot of interviews and stuff. So we got in front of the TV on a Zoom call and Russell Dickerson came on the screen and I just started freaking out because this it, is the artist of your favorite song. Yeah, I know. It was so cool. And he told me that day that he teamed up with Chevrolet and got me a brand new car, a 2021 Chevy Traverse. And so he got me a car and it was out front in my in my driveway and so he said go look outside and I lost it. It was so unreal. Like it felt like a dream because it was like the happiest moment of my life. I didn't I mean, I asked a lot of questions after I found out my legs were gone, and I asked, will I be able to cheer? Will I be able to drive? You know, What, what does life look like? Yeah, exactly. And my mom just kept saying, yes, yes. Will I be able to swim? Yes. All the things. And so, I mean, driving, it's just with hand controls and... Now it's like second nature. I'm driving everywhere. So I, I have the car and it's fully outfitted for me. There's like a ramp that comes out for me to get in. And it's wow. it's so cool. So cool. That's amazing. You know, um, from where you started to where you are now. Um, what does life look like for you right now? Right now, I just I just feel so happy, like, all the time. I find so much joy in the progression that I see in myself. Like, even today, I, like, I had been struggling with picking stuff up off the floor that were, you know, kind of heavy. But today, I, find, I finally was able to do it. And it just makes me so happy, like, even the littlest things, like me learning how to sit up for the first time or roll over to my side. I had to relearn how to do everything. And so it makes me so happy when I finally am able to do the things that I had been struggling with. And so, yeah, right now I just I just find so much joy in the progression. I'm still doing physical therapy to help me get stronger. I still hang out with friends. I go swimming all the time. It's yeah, it's Where do you so think fun. the strength comes from? Um, 
That's a hard question. I feel like... I don't know, because I feel like I'm the same person that I used to be, if not better. I... I don't know. I mean, my parents really help with my, like, mental strength. We talk about things all the time, which helps. I don't, yeah, I don't know. Sometimes things are modeled to us in our family. You're the youngest of six, so big family. Um, Growing up, how did you, this might be kind of a, very much a shrinks question, but uh, how how did you observe older siblings or your parents handle adversity like what's is there a family style for how to deal with problems in your in your household what did you see growing up growing up we definitely talk about things with each other when we were having conflicts rather than shutting people out which I feel like helps like I mean, as a teenager, you just want to go in your room all day and when you're mad. But I feel like we would always talk about things. And, yeah, my older siblings are the biggest examples to me. I mean, I've already shared a story about my Mm -hmm. brother. And, yeah, so, yeah, I feel like we would just talk about things. Open communication and kind of feeling close. I, yeah. Um, I'm not surprised that that would be part of your answer. That's because, and it should be sort of something that other people who are listening to the show, parents who are listening, um, that's a wonderful thing to model because uh, closeness comes after we communicate, like a, an open communication style in a family binds people together. And when we feel bound together in our family, uh, it is an encouraging, optimistic sort of way of feeling like I'm not alone. I'm going to be, I have this group that's yeah. that, that's part of who I am. They want my success and I want their success. And I think that's a really neat uh, style that we'll probably give credit to mom and dad for. Yeah. Uh, Even starting, like having you know. family dinners together every mm-hmm. single night, that's what we would do, which is so cool because we would talk about things there and mm-hmm. we would always have family dinners. Communication is the key. You've always loved the fact that you're a cheerleader. And you said that you continue to cheer. You recently just did something with the rest of your cheerleaders. Tell me about that. So last night actually was the last time I'll ever perform again with the cheerleading squad. We had our very last performance. It was just like a little showcase for the parents um, because we weren't allowed to have competitions this year. Mm -hmm. And so um, my team performed there what would have been their comp routine. And then the seniors of four different high schools performed the, what they call the Sarah Strong dance, um, the dance to home suite. So I was able to go out and perform with them, which was super, super fun. You're tremendous. You are such an inspiration. And I have seen a smile on your face since the moment I've met you. Greg, is she always this happy? She actually really is. She when when she was in the hospital, we were bracing for these extreme lows that you hear people that have this kind of trauma will experience. Like Which is the, the, really the norm. That's right. typical. Yeah, right? and we had talked to some people, talked to some some victims of other accidents that had left them paraplegic, and 
and they had they had gone through long stretches, like a year or two of their life, where they were really in the dark de- depressions. So we were, we were really bracing for that, and they were they were telling us you got to be careful. Like her her mantra's kind of been Sarah Strong, but she's going to need to also have know that she can be Sarah Sad and um, Sarah Mad and all that. But we've just and and so she was posting on her social media, which just started to take off like crazy, and and the face that you see on social media that is her. She'll when when she goes through a bad period, it's like maybe four or five minutes. And then she pulls herself out somehow. I, I don't know how she's doing it. She she really – she can look at something like – she looks at her – like the thing – the example she gave about today, picking something up that was in the shower and she picked something up off the out of the tub and that was so huge for her. She can either – she chooses to – the choice she has is I can either say woe is me or I can celebrate a, a small victory. I can look at my wheelchair and say I hate this chair because it's so constricting and confining and I'm, I'm, a, I'm confined to it. Or I can say, I'm so grateful for technology that gives me a wheelchair that allows me to go places. I'm so thankful for my wheelchair. She always takes that high road, that positive choice when you have a choice, two choices to make. I call that, and, and it's called optimism, right? And it's a personality trait. Has she always been an optimistic little person uh, yeah. growing up in the household? Yep. Yep. She has. And I think if parents knew how young in the lives of their kids they are learning about the modeling that you talked about, mm-hmm. they're not listening to what you say. They're watching what you do. They Parents would be amazed at how early on that stuff is taught. It is. how powerful it's, it's, of a message it is. It's from the very beginning. And it's interesting. I've uh, We have another optimist in the room. And that's Casey. I brought that up a lot on this show. That's one of the the reasons that people love to be around Sarah and they love to be around Casey. Optimists do see the upside to everything. And they are fun and they are inspiring to be around. You can feel it when you're around somebody that's truly an optimistic person. Most of us are somewhere in the middle on that bell-shaped curve. And we have a little optimism. We have a little pessimism. We struggle pushing one way or the other. Um, But it's really neat to be around and inspiring to be around people that are true optimists. Um, yeah, like you said, Casey's definitely an os- optimist. Um, fr- like from right when I met you, I feel like we can tot- like our personalities would be so like, yeah, yes. like you'd be my best friend. <laughs> we'd, we'd finish each other's, you're supposed to say sandwich. sandwiches. Yeah, <laughs> sandwiches. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, coming down today, I was telling my dad, we were kind of talking about you and kind of what you're doing, and I was like, I feel like I I would want you to be my driver, someone who would admit that, you know, because it would be a lot easier to forgive if my driver... You know, said sorry and stuff. I think that's the biggest compliment you could possibly offer. But it's so messed up that it's a compliment because I should have never been in that situation. I never should have put myself or that family in the people that I hurt. I I mean, I, I want to sit down with the people I hit. Um, I hope one day to do so. Because 
Like, there's no excuse for drinking and driving. I mean, and I don't know. It is the most selfish thing you can do. And I did it. I did it a lot. And I look at you and... You shouldn't be in that chair. You shouldn't. And the fact that you're turning something so tragic into something so amazing makes me love you so much more. And I hope one day that I'll be able to talk to them and and I hope they will forgive me. But if they don't, I don't blame them. I, I really don't. You know, it's just, you shouldn't be there. Have you, Sarah, can I ask if you've had any contact, conversation with the driver in your accident? No, we have not. He has not reached out. So the sentencing was Monday. That for us was a, a big milestone. We wanted. To, we've been waiting for obviously since this started, and um, they these girls. So Josh is on a mission, and he was zoomed in. So there were three girls in the courtroom, and the driver had a perfect opportunity twice, and was even asked. To, to come up and and apologize and look these girls in the eyes and that's what they wanted they wanted him to just look at them and say I'm sorry and um, but he he didn't and that's been a tough thing we've been talking a lot about that since Monday but I know restitution was a word that was used a lot in the courtroom mm-hmm. and Casey I just got to say you know there's more to restitution than monetary reimbursement there's there's what you're doing that's that shows so much i mean your restitution efforts are amazing and if everybody that that it was a DUI driver did what you're doing in whatever arena you're playing to your strengths if they would just do that to their strengths serve society pay give back and look at that as a as a way of restitution can you imagine how much better society would be. So God bless you for what you're doing. And please look at that as you're going above and beyond in what you're doing. Uh, I agree. And, and, you know, emotional restitution is healing for both sides. Of course. How has it been? Has it been hard for you, Sarah, knowing or having that experience of the driver, not being willing to, to apologize as far as your feelings of forgiveness and how you think about that person, um, what's what's been going on for you since Monday? Um, it just was so unexpected. I went in there confident that he would say sorry. Um, so it just makes it hard to 
forgive. Um, I know I want to eventually, once, I don't know, once he comes forward and is able to face it like you, Casey, does, and... But I, I, I got to, I got to stop because I haven't had the opportunity yet to apologize to the people that I hurt. I mean, I, I mean, I mean, I want to, but when, when, when the accident happened in the beginning, uh, they didn't want anything to do with me. I mean, I followed them on social uh, and looked into it, and because of everything that was going on, I wasn't allowed to. And I remember saying on this podcast, you know, when we first started it. I said, I hope one day to be able to sit down and tell them I'm sorry. And I don't think sorry will ever be able to be said enough. And I want them to know that because of that, I'm doing this. And out of that tragedy became something good. And, and like, because I don't want people that are listening to this to think that I've done that, you know, because I haven't. And I want to. And, and, and hopefully this will get a conversation going where I can. But there's a chance that, you know, you're, you were willing to hear it. There's a chance that the people I hit do not want to hear from me. And, and, and I don't blame them. I really don't because forgiveness is not mine to give. It's, it, it's them, you know. Can you tell me um, a little bit about what you were thinking when um, – Either when the accident happened or when the sentencing occurred or like what you were thinking? Sure. When the accident happened, like you, I remember bits and pieces. I remember that I was done drinking, that I was done doing what I had been doing. I had negotiated. I had made promises to God, deals with the devil to just to to outthink this disease. And I tried everything I knew. And Sarah, I, 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 I think I'm a pretty smart guy. And I threw everything I knew at it. And it always ended up with me still drinking. So I decided I was done. And I made that decision that day. And the next day I went into rehab uh, and have never looked back. Not to say that I don't think about it. Because I think we learn from our past. And I think about it every day. I think about the people I hurt every day. Multiple times a day. So I went to rehab and did all that. And when I came out, uh, so it had been 45 days. And so I finally go to court and I didn't know what was going to happen. But I remember saying, whatever he says, I will do. Because that's what is asked of me. And so I didn't do any jail time. Because they said that the 45 days, 53 days that I did in rehab, I didn't see my family for 45 days. And, and I'm not saying that's an excuse either way. You know what I mean? That's just what was given to me. Yeah. But had I had to go to jail, I would have done it. I would have done it in a heartbeat. Yeah. And when you sit there and you talk about, you know, her resilience and her optimism and what there's going is, is that every day I'm living on borrowed time. Because there's a chance that I could have killed somebody, that I could be in prison and watching my daughters and my son grow up behind bars. And I can tell you, looking now, had I killed somebody, and this is just honest, I, we've never talked about this on this, I don't know if I could have lived with myself. 
I don't know how. But then I don't know how I would do that and and not be around for my kids. And so by the graces of God, I don't know how my situation ended up like this. But I'm grateful and I'll never take it for granted. I never will. Um, So I have a question, but let me first just for the record, just clarify. He, He did in his statement on Monday, in his written statement, his impact statement, he did say, I'm sorry that this happened to you. So there is there. He did say that mm-hmm. they're saying sorry. And then there's saying sorry. And he the the his statement um, just he just he wanted. Well, I don't want to get into the details of it. But, but see, that's but that's what I'm telling you is that actions speak louder for words than me. Right. And says so I could have right out of that went and talked to him and said, I'm sorry, but I had nothing behind me to back up what I was going to do. I feel confident now sitting in their living room, talking to them and explaining to them how sorry I am. And I know sorry will never be able to to, to, to solve it. But because of that, I haven't had a drink in close to three years. I started a podcast where we have people come on and talk about the recovery and show them that there's a different way that maybe they don't have to hit a rock bottom. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, 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 I speak at schools. I speak to parents. I, I work closely with the recovery community. So I, I can say that, look, yeah, it wasn't just words. There's actions behind what I'm doing. And, and, and I didn't feel confident right from the get-go to sit down because – is it just lip service? I didn't want it to be just lip service. I wanted to show them. And I can tell you because of that family and the people that I hurt, they give me fuel. And I'm sad that they, that they have to be my fuel, but they are. They, they, they make it easy when I say I don't want to drink because I know where I could have been and I know where I want to be. And alcohol is not in it. And the fact that that happened forces me to be a better person. And makes me want to be a better person. Were you injured physically I, in the accident? So I had a, a cut on my forehead and had eight stitches. But much like you, I came to in a hospital. But I was handcuffed to a gurney with two officers guarding the door. And I've said it on this podcast before. I look over and you've been in a hospital room for 75 days. You know the the silver napkin dispensers they have right there? I saw my reflection in the mirror, and I didn't recognize the guy looking back. I knew it was me because I was handcuffed to the chair. And it scared me that I didn't even recognize the person looking back at me. And I made a promise that day, and I make it every day, that I'll never be that person again. I don't want to be that person. The world doesn't deserve that person. My kids don't deserve it, and I don't want to be that person. Change is a really interesting uh, thing to study, how people change, why they change. Um, there's, a, there's a real process to, to how people make significant, lasting, meaningful changes in their life. And I think, Sarah, you're obviously doing everything you can, like your dad said, playing to your strengths to move forward and, and be the optimistic, inspirational person that you are. And I think that maybe what we can hope for uh, for your driver is that somehow he um, engages in that process of change. And so that meaningful interaction that you hoped for this week didn't happen, but it might. And I think yeah. an optimist would assume that it could. And if it doesn't, 
you're going to keep moving forward anyway. Yeah. That's but, one thing. But I, it could happen. That's one thing I learned too. And I remember saying that is that there's a lot of people out there that haven't forgiven me or won't forgive me. And that's okay because that's their right. But I can't let that affect who I want to be. I, I don't want to carry that around with me. It's too heavy and it doesn't serve me any purpose. Yeah. So I've got to be the best person I can for my kids, for my community and move forward. But I'll speak to those people because you're right. It's their right. They're in their own process of life and, and it's their life. But they will feel so much healthier and happier and live a richer, more meaningful life if they can find it in themselves to forgive. That is huge. And when we are unwilling to forgive others, it is a rock in your backpack. It weighs you down. It makes you live a heavier life than you need to. So if if I could encourage somebody, whether they're related to your story, Sarah, or your story, Casey, or, or not, if you are having trouble forgiving someone, one of the most psychologically and emotionally healthy things you could do is figure out how to forgive. But it's easier said than done. And I understand that. And I think it goes back to what your dad says, time. And you're going to figure out your path. And I'm amazed at your path already. I mean, in this short little time that you've been dealt this blow, you have done some amazing things. You have caused change so much in the fact that your dad is talking with who later on today? And what are you guys trying to work on? So it's legislation on a national level for the car manufacturers to implement the technology that we have that can prevent thousands and thousands. I mean, they estimate 9,500 deaths a year um, could be prevented by the technology that we currently are using in our cars. They just need to tweak it a little bit. And um, the manufacturers, that's that's what we're doing. We're, we're going before Congress and um, – Get, trying to get sponsors for these these bills. There's two bills, and if they can get the technology in the cars, they can sense when driving is erratic or uh, dangerous. The technology is there to save lives. And it's already in a lot of cars, it right, yeah, it's, as it's an option. Edu- but yeah. what you're talking about is why not make this a standard required right. safety measure right. just like a seatbelt is. Yeah, I mean, I still got something in my car that I have to blow in it to start, and I haven't had a drink in – over two and a half years. I don't understand why those aren't standard in all cars. I mean, I used to be able to, I, I mean, it was stupid as this sounds, Sarah, and, and I'm ashamed that I, like, you don't get to tell me what to do. But why, why can anybody choose to have alcohol and then drive? If, if, look, if you want to drink, great. There's an Uber, there's a taxi, there's the train, there's a sober driver. But I want to hear one good reason why you should be able to drink and get behind a wheel, even the littlest bit. Well, there isn't. There isn't. But, but people will stand on their well, sword for that. That's where people, and we've seen it a lot this year, yeah. people get hung up on the difference between individual rights and the rights of others. And uh, I don't see, and I'm with you, Casey, I would vote for having uh, that be a standard thing in everyone's car. I'd be happy to do that because look at the change that would make. You can't drive around without it. I mean, Greg, you said what? Estimated 95,000 deaths a year? 9,500. I'm just getting involved with it, so I, I'm not sure on the statistics. But and, one's and too many. But yeah. Yeah. But, and I'm with you on the rights whole thing. Like, you know, we need, we need government to stay out. But there are, when you have the technology there 
And it's not even to the extent of having to blow into a device to tech to check your BAC. It's just it's just the technology is there to not hit the car in front of you. The technology is there to not go out of your lane, and the technology is there to for these self driving cars. So, you know, it's after a certain number of sensing that you're not in control of your car to the extent you should be. It can it can literally pull that car over and turn the engine off, you know. And you think about that coming up eighty nine. If if that car, if your car at the time could have just pulled itself over and turned itself off, and you know it, it is it's interesting because I I um, I'm normally a very calm person. I think mm-hmm. I think maybe, unless we're talking about masks, uh, but I lost it uh, talking about masks. And the individual rights and people who don't want to wear a mask and all of that sort of thing. Vaccines. And, and because – because <laughs> vaccines, yeah. We, we won't go there today. But um, but the idea is that we, we do have individual rights. But you also have to look at how your behavior affects your community and people around you. And at some point, we have an obligation to um, change our behavior to benefit the greater good. Um, I remember being a little kid – my parents had at that time a very old white station wagon. I think it was a Buick and it didn't even have seatbelts in the back because that wasn't a law back then. And we would roll around in the back and do all sorts of crazy things while my mom was driving. She, she I'm sure is traumatized by us as kids. But now can you imagine buying a car without seatbelts? But there were people that said, it's all right. I shouldn't have to wear a seatbelt. We don't need to you know, make seatbelts in all the cars. I think manufacturers back said, oh, it'll drive the cost up of these cars. We can't do it. But, of course, that legislation is so far in the past that most people can't even remember the, a day when they made cars without seatbelts uh, mm-hmm. or without seatbelts in the back or when you didn't have to wear a seatbelt. And hopefully someday in the future, we're having a similar conversation where this sort of technology is just so standard to keep people safe. It would be amazing. And so thank you for spending your time uh, trying to advocate for that technology. Thank you. Let's go back to Sarah and her pretty blue nails. So <laughs> she got them done. They look absolutely beautiful. <laughs> so where does Sarah go from here? Well, um, I mean, it's crazy to think it's only been nine months. Like when I was in the, or thinking about when I was in the hospital feels like forever ago. So, I mean, it's almost summertime. I'll just, I'm graduating this year. Um, We'll have a fun summer. My brother, who I was talking about earlier, he is actually on a mission for our church. And so he'll get home um, at the very beginning of June. So he'll be able to come home and we'll have a fun summer. Um, And then I'm going to Utah State University and studying elementary education where I want to become an elementary school teacher. So Wonderful. I think you can do whatever you put your mind to because what you've accomplished in nine months. I would have loved to have you as my elementary school teacher. (laughs) That's amazing. I had a few doozies that I still remember. I had Miss Astle. That was her name. That sounds tough. (laughs) <laughs> I, I have I had an elementary school teacher that uh, we were finger painting one day, and she came up and ripped mine off the easel and crumpled it up and threw it away and said, "Try again." <laughs> That's a true story. <laughs> yeah, I've always wanted to be an elementary school teacher. Like um, when I was in elementary school, I would look around and like picture things in my classroom, and so it's c- so cool to be able to 
say that I can still do that. Like that's something I can well think totally about still all do. the generations of people you'll be able to influence. Uh, a good teacher in our lives is hard hard to replace. A good teacher is everything. Talk about modeling and encouragement, and and you're primed for your personality to be somebody who will just make a difference in hundreds, if not thousands, of kids' lives. So I think that's a Thank Wonderful you. choice. Well, I want to say thank you very much to you, Sarah and uh, Greg, for stopping by today and sharing your story. Uh, if people wanted to follow you on Instagram, is that something you want? Or yeah, sure. Yeah. So it's strong dot like dot Sarah. So strong like Sarah. <laughs> I love it, and you are amazing. Uh, I'm going to give you a hug. I know it's not appropriate during COVID, <laughs> but I don't care. Uh, you've been listening to Project Recovery. It's uh, brought to you by knowyourscript.org. And don't forget, Project Recovery is a KSL podcast. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.